This episode of the ACB Advocacy Update has been made possible in part through the support of ACB of Minnesota. You're listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the ACB Advocacy Update. Thank you to everyone joining us, no matter where and when you are joining us, whether that's uh, listening live on the ACB Media Network or downloading via your favorite podcast player. My name is Clark Rockfall, and I am the ACB Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host. Hi, everyone. My name is Swapa Ananda Kumar. I am the Advocacy Outreach Specialist here at ACB. And Swatha, here we are in mid-June of 2022. The ACB conference and convention is just around the corner. So if folks would like to learn more about ACB and the work that we do, you can always visit acb.org. If you'd like to register and attend the ACB conference and convention, whether virtually, in person, or both, which... Swatha, I don't know about you, but I'll probably do attend some in person, mm-hmm. kick my feet up in the hotel room, attend mm-hmm. some virtually. You can uh, learn more at acbconvention.org. Yep, absolutely. July 11th, or excuse me, July 1st to 8th, Swatha, it'll be here before we know it. Yep, excited, very excited, very excited. First one in person, so. Uh, it'll only be my second in person as ACB staff, although my fourth uh, convention as staff total. Uh, I am equally excited for the conversation and the guests that we have here for our podcast today. Yep. So today we have Christine Kim, who is a trial attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice. We also have um, Aaron Konopaski. From the or yeah, from the Employment Opportunity Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, who and he is a senior attorney advisor. So hello, hello, how are you both? Hey, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. Yeah. Um. So. Can you guys tell us about your roles at the EOC and your respectively? Let me start with Christine Kim. Sure. Um, so my name is Christine Kim. I am a trial attorney with the Disability Rights Section, specifically of the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. Um, to give a little bit of background on my office and what we do, um, the disability rights section plays a central role in enforcing the Americans with Disabilities Act, which I'll call the ADA for short um, during this conversation. So along with the EEOC, we enforce rules prohibiting disability discrimination in employment. Uh, the disability rights section is responsible for investigating and bringing lawsuits against public employers that violate the ADA either um, after the EEOC has referred an individual's charge to us or when we have information indicating that a public employer has engaged in a pattern or practice of disability discrimination. And I'm Aaron Aaron Konopaski. I'm a senior attorney advisor 
uh, in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC. And what we do in the Office of Legal Counsel is uh, we write guidance and technical assistance documents uh, to help people understand their rights and obligations under federal employment discrimination law. And we also write regulations. And I've spent uh, most of my time doing ADA work. Uh, and if you have a complaint of employment discrimination uh, in, in the private sector, if you're employed by uh, a private employer, then uh, you'll come to us to file a charge of discrimination. Great, thank you both. Um, and very relevant to our conversation today, guidance from both the EEOC as well as the Department of Justice or DOJ. And last month, uh, both of your agencies or departments released guidance related to the use of artificial intelligence and algorithms um, and the, the potential implications for discrimination in the workplace. Could you yeah. share with us what some examples of uh, how algorithms and how artificial intelligence, how those are used either in the workplace, you know, for employees or job applicants? Sure. Um, so far, we're seeing it mostly in, in hiring. Um, and when we're talking about artificial intelligence specifically, usually what happens is the employer hires a developer, a software developer, and they come in and the developer gives, uh, gives the employer's current workforce a range of assessments. And uh, what the artificial intelligence does is it tries to figure out what kind of person the employer likes or what kind of person, person mm -hmm. performs well uh, in that particular business or role. And um, the computer then comes up with a kind of a, a recipe, which some people call an algorithm or a model for figuring out whether someone fits into that mold of what the employer likes. And then once it's done that, it can use it on job applicants to figure out which job applicants are most like the, uh, the, the model that it created when it took a look at the existing workforce. So that's a, that's a kind of a bare bones description of, of what happens. And there, but there can be a lot of difference in terms of the details. Um, sometimes the computer program is looking at personality specifically. Um, it might instead look at values or neurocognitive traits. And the method of getting information could vary as well. So, for example, one program might ask multiple choice questions, but another might have people play video games or speak into a camera. So there's really a vast range, um, but mostly we're seeing it in terms of hiring, although they are starting to create ones that evaluate current employees for their productivity as well. And Christine, is there anything that you would like to add to how uh, algorithms and artificial intelligence are currently being used in the by employers for either employees or job applicants? Um, so I, I would say that employers are, as we're seeing, increasingly using algorithms and AI to help them select new employees, as Aaron just talked about through hiring, 
Um, they could also be using it through monitoring to monitor employee performance and to determine pay or promotion. And, you know, employers are using these AI or algorithm driven tools to, um, for example, show advertisements to targeted groups to give computer based tests to measure an applicant's skills or abilities to decide if an applicant needs certain job qualifications or, or as Aaron was talking about, um, kind of the fit uh, question. Um, they could also be using them through holding online video interviews of job applicants or even to score applicants' resumes. So it's, it's really a range, um, but I, I agree that there's a lot of, um, you'll see a lot of the technologies being used in the hiring sphere, uh, either for a new job applicant or even current employees who are applying for a promotion. Thank you. And, and Christine, could you give a quick summary of the DOJ guidance related to uh, artificial intelligence or AI and algorithms in the workplace? Definitely. Um, so our document's called Algorithms, Artificial Intelligence, and Disability Discrimination in Hiring. Um, the simultaneous release of our respective documents actually marks the first time that the EEOC and DOJ have issued any kind of technical assistance or guidance. Um, focusing on algorithmic or AI-driven disability discrimination. So we're really excited about um, this, you know, this, uh, the release of our documents. Um, uh, the DOJ's document explains generally how algorithms and artificial intelligence can lead to disability discrimination in hiring. It provides a broad overview of rights and responsibilities in a way that is easily understandable to people without a legal or technical background. And I really wanna stress this, um, our goal in issuing this document is to simply state in general terms and plain language, how the ADA applies in this emerging space. Because um, we wanna make sure that individuals with disabilities, members of the public can be aware of their rights and employers of their obligations when, they're te when technology is being used um, for hiring or other employment decisions. Um, and if you want to read our document, it can be found at beta.ada.gov slash AI hyphen guidance. So it's beta, B-E-T-A dot ada.gov at AI hyphen guidance. Um, it's a very short document, uh, again, to kind of hit the point of how our document is um, different and from the EEOCs, which I think is great um, as well. Um, our document is really focused on providing this information in plain language and general terms um, for anyone in the member of the public to be able to understand these kind of more esoteric or complicated or technical issues. And we will certainly link to both guidance documents uh, along with this podcast. So thank you. Aaron, how is the EEOC guidance different than that from the DOJ? Right. So ours is, is a little bit longer. I mean, that's the first uh, big difference you, you can notice. Uh, ours is called the Americans with Disabilities Act and the use of software algorithms and artificial intelligence to assess job applicants and employees. Um, and I would say that it's probably aimed a little bit more at the employer or the sophisticated employer who already knows a little bit about these kinds of things or is considering purchasing one of these services or, or tests and maybe even perhaps the developers who wanna know how to create a test that is not gonna to lead to liability for its customers. 
Um, and so what we try to do in our document is lay out uh, in relatively simple terms what the three main kinds of discrimination are that can arise uh, from the use of one of these tools or decision-making aids. Uh, and then we also give some um, tips for employers and tips for people who, who think that their rights may have been violated. Um, I'm sure we're going to get to this in a second, but I'll, I'll mention really quickly um, the three kinds of discrimination that I was going to, that I'm referencing are, are uh, reasonable accommodation, denial of reasonable accommodation. That's number one. Screen out is number two. And medical inquiry is, is number three. So we go over those three things in, uh, you know, a relatively good amount of detail. Yeah, so going off of the um, three types of, of discrimination, um, can you can you can you both give examples of um, what that could look like or what that what has happened that could trigger like um, someone being having their rights violated in that sense? Sure, Christine, did you want to start? Sure. Um, so. We, our document's pretty um, short, but I, I can kind of expand upon an example that we include. Um, so I guess here is a, like a hypothetical example. Um, imagine that your state's Department of Motor Vehicles, the DMV, needs to hire a customer service representative. Um, and that job will be to help people get driver's licenses, register vehicles, order license plates. Um, instead of a traditional in-person interview, the DMV decides to use an online interview program where an applicant uploads a video of themselves, answers a set of questions, and then rather having a person review those videos, the DMV uses only an online interview program that has algorithms and artificial intelligence uh, that assesses the applicants and choose which people the DMV should hire. And again, this is a hypothetical, but I think it's still helpful to kind of talk in this um, to give it this way. So the DMV likely believes that its hiring technology is able to assess the skills and abilities of the applicants by analyzing their facial movements or speech patterns or the words that people use in their answers. And the technology will compare, as Aaron kind of gave an example earlier, it'll compare, you know, those um, facial movements, speech patterns, and word choices to those of the employees that the DMV considers the most successful, successful in their jobs, and then picks which applicants are most likely, are most like the DMV's current employees or successful employees to hire. But because the DMV is not, doesn't have or hasn't hired many people with disabilities in the past, uh, the artificial intelligence tool that they have might does not have examples of many successful employees with disabilities in their staff uh, so that people who have different speech patterns or facial movements because of their disabilities might not be represented. And as a result, none of the applicants are chosen. Um, none of the applicants chosen by the tool have disabilities. So it, without enough data to properly assess the people with disabilities like individuals who have speech impairments or autism, people with disabilities can be unfairly screened out of the applicant pool, even though they are qualified to be customer service representatives. And so the DMV's use of this hiring technology and this hypothetical can lead to unlawful discrimination. Yeah, I think, I I think know, that's, Aaron, I yeah, I think <laughs> Go that's a good example. I, I, like, um, I like the example because uh, one of the ways I like to think about screen out, which is one of the, the three main 
kinds of discrimination is is that the test is miscalibrated in a certain way. Um, in the example that you described, the person is being assessed against a kind of average uh, high-performing employee, and that's not going to give the right result for this particular person who might have um, speech impairment and might not talk the way an average uh, person talks or an average successful uh, person. And so the, the test isn't calibrated correctly for this person because it says that this person isn't going to do a good job when in fact they might do a very good job. Um, so that's, that's a, one kind of discrimination. And then a, a, a different kind of discrimination is, um, is even more straightforward, I think, which is uh, if the person can't participate at all. Uh, so this is inaccessibility, uh, which probably all the listeners are, are familiar with. But if the person um, can't speak at all, for example, uh, they're not going to be able to do the interview in the first place. And if they uh, uh, tell the employer that they're, they have a problem uh, undergoing the, the test or, or per performing the interview, that's later going to be analyzed uh, because they have a, a medical condition, then the employer is obligated to provide a reasonable accommodation, um, which in this case is uh, probably going to be some kind of alternative, um, like either an alternative test, uh, a different format, or even an alternative way of evaluating the candidate that, that, that's totally different. Um, and the employer has the right to, has the obligation, I mean, to consider that and to provide an alternative, um, unless doing so is, is going to cause significant difficulty or expense. Uh, and we consider that a form of, uh, discrimination if the reasonable accommodation isn't provided, uh, when it should be. Well, thank you, Aaron, for, for talking about the obligation of um, employers to provide reasonable accommodations for uh, people with disabilities when this technology is used. Um, so I'm going to have to pivot here because that was my next question. Um, so specific to people who are blind and low vision, it's something that we've heard from our members is that you know, they hope that remote and virtual interviews don't go away once the pandemic's over. Um, but Christine, I believe earlier you mentioned that you know, using these technologies could uh, pose some accessibility barriers for disabled applicants. Um, can you talk a little bit about some specific challenges related to artificial intelligence and algorithms that applicants or employees who are blind might face. Uh, certainly the you know, time out, if somebody's encountering a, an inaccessible application or game, um, that could be a, a significant barrier. Uh, do you have a sense of what some others might be? Um, yeah, so let's go ahead. No, go ahead, Aaron. I was just going to say, uh, I mean, so, some of these tests are inescapably visual. Uh, I mean, I've seen tests that are personality tests that, that 
go by way of images. And so the, the procedure is to show an image to a, an individual or a candidate, and then the candidate is supposed to um, reply in a certain way, uh, either thumbs up or thumbs down or me or not me, something like that. And um, on the basis of those answers, the profile is developed of the, of the individual. And that, it seems to me to be one that uh, is going to be a complete sort of no-go for someone with uh, low vision. Um, and in that particular case, you know, if, if you encounter that sort of problem, um, I think the best thing to do is to contact the, 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 the vendor or the test administrator or the employer and tell them that there's a problem and ask for an alternative. And um, as I was mentioning before, it's their legal obligation to, to provide that. It's not um, something extra that you're asking for as a favor. It's uh, actually your right to get that um, so that you can compete on a level playing field. Um, so that's another one that comes to mind. Christine, what, what were you gonna say? Um, I definitely, I, I agree. Um, I think that's very well said. I think that, you know, when we talk about this space and about the ADA, there's already, um, I think because I am a trial attorney who enforces the ADA, um, I, I love the law. I think it's incredible. And there are so many parts of the law um, that would apply to, um, to people, especially with vision disabilities and, you know, who are in the, in the process of going through an application or being hired. And the ADA already has a lot of really great um, provisions in it that protect people's rights and will apply to all these different scenarios that we're talking about today. And in um, the EEOC's document and in our document, we reference the existing, the existing um, legal obligations that exist under the ADA. And one of them is the, um, the testing provision of the ADA, which says that um, if the technology require a person or an applicant to take a test, then um, the, the employers must ensure that those tests or games measure only the relevant skills and abilities of the applicant rather than reflecting the applicant's impaired sensory manual or speaking skills that the tests do not seek to measure. Um, and so that provision applies across the board um, you know, to, to, to the employers that are covered. And when we talk about like how are people going to be affected and we're talking about these computer-based you know, tests with algorithms and AI, we're applying, you know, the ADA already uh, provides people with rights and protections that will apply in those spaces and in all the various ways. And I think there are a lot of ways that people with vision impairments will be impacted by these tools. Um, as Aaron talked about, it could be a computer-based test that has images um, that you have to, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, answer questions about that would obviously have an impact. It could also be, um, you know, and so I think that that's, I guess I just wanted to highlight the fact that like the ADA is already has a lot of really strong provisions that exist and can be applied in different spaces. And in this instance, we're applying it to, in general, all algorithm, you know, any kind of tool that's being used by an employer. Um, I'm trying to, I know that, you know, you, you kind of raised, and I think that this is right, that the pandemic has really changed um, the way that hiring is happening in some ways, because a lot of things are being done virtually and, if any way, you know, in a lot of ways, it opens up um, or reduces a lot of barriers for folks who might have been um, impacted in the past or prevented in the past from participating because you can do it right at home 
people with disabilities often have, you know, limited sometimes abilities to, uh, you know, access public transit or to get to interviews. And, and, and this really kind of provides that kind of access. Um, and that is something that is incredible and awesome. Um, and we don't want that to, um, our, our guidance to, to, to deter folks from being able to engage in that, um, engage in these more, um, I guess, opportunities that allow them to, to interview virtually from home and things of that sort and to take these tests. We just want to make sure that while these are proliferating and becoming more common, that um, there aren't other ways that, <laughs> that people get discriminated against through, um, like for example, the online interview pr platforms that analyze your facial movements and, the, mm. um, and you know, watch your eye, track eye movement potentially or um, which some AI might do, or computer-based tests that are timed. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, um, or a computer-based test that doesn't interact at all with the screen reader program, or, a, um, or, or any kind of platform that's being used uh, that's not screen reader, um, that a person can't use with their screen reader, or any other kind of assistive technology. Um, sure. So I think that it's, it's a lot of different ways that this is going to crop up and there are a lot of examples and we just encourage folks to, if you encounter these, to um, ask for the accommodations that are required and <laughs> necessary under the ADA and to also let the EEOC file, file charge with the EEOC reach out and also reach out to us too. Oh my Absolutely. goodness. Absolutely. And I wanted to follow up on, on one thing, the thing that you mentioned specifically about uh, people doing things remotely, interviewing remotely or, or working remotely. For sure, what we don't want to be doing is saying or be perceived as saying that technology is, is bad or suspect or, or anything like that. Um, and, you know, when, when these new technologies come along, there's always a lot of attention paid to them because they're new and, and interesting. But um, people, of course, shouldn't forget the, the, the sort of ordinary or everyday protections that they've been taking advantage of uh, for a long time. And one of those might be remote work or remote mm -hmm. interviewing in this particular case. And, and so this is an example where technology is helpful. Um, and if the interview isn't remote, for example, but it, it, it has to be just because of, uh, of a disability for some reason, then you can uh, request that it be done remotely. And again, the uh, employer would have to do that unless it would be significant difficulty or expense. Um, so there's, there's both good and bad from the technology. And thank you both so much for, for all of those points. Aaron, the only thing that I'll slightly rephrase from your last point is that technology can be very helpful when it's designed, tested, developed, and implemented uh, in with accessibility in mind, right? So all of these yes. tools can be can be very helpful. Uh, Christine, you mentioned one example of tracking eye movement. Well, if somebody who's blind is not making eye contact with a, a camera, they might be scored lower as a result. Uh, just recently, my wife and I were having a, a similar conversation to this topic as she was going through an application process and she had to match adjectives to facial expressions. And we were having the conversation of, I wonder if this is accessible or what the alternative would be. And then earlier this year, talking with 
emerging technology vendors at the Consumer Electronics Show, one of which had a virtual reality headset where the wearer would play a aptitude video game. And when asking the vendor about uh, you know, being blind and doing it uh, or deaf and hard of hearing, they're like, oh, well, you know, we've, we have received some feedback that glasses and hearing aids don't fit well under the VR headset. It's like, oh, oh dear, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so just, just some additional examples of you know, how this technology, uh, the technology is coming, right? And the technology will improve uh, efficiency and performance, but we need to ensure that it's accessible and that alternatives exist, um, not because it's nice to do, but as you both stated, because it's our rights as employees and as applicants. Uh, Christine, next question. You, oh, sorry, go ahead. And just one point I wanted to add on to that. In our document, we talk about this um, because oftentimes these tools may not be um, may not be advertised or made very clear about exactly how the tools are operating or what they're assessing. And so, in our document, we talk about how you know we really hit hard on the need to provide reasonable accommodations. It is a it's a core part of the ADA. And so some examples of practices that employers using these technologies may need to implement to ensure that applicants receive their needed reasonable accommodations, you know, include telling applicants about the type of technology being used and how the applicants will be evaluated, providing enough information to applicants so that they can decide whether to seek a reasonable accommodation, and then providing and implementing clear procedures for requesting reasonable accommodations and making sure that asking for one does not hurt the applicant's chance of getting the job. Um, so I think that's an important point just to stress too, because in some ways, a lot of this is being done virtually and through computer programs. And you know, you may think that you are um, going through a normal online interview where you're just being recorded and that's all that's happening. But if 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 there's more information that needs to be provided for someone to know that they need to ask for a reasonable accommodation, like there's eye tracking software, or there's, you know, some, some algorithms being used that's going to, you know, potentially screen out or negatively impact that person. You know, we, we give examples of practices that employers should, you know, may need to implement to ensure that they are fulfilling the reasonable accommodation requirements under the ADA. And the, the procedure part is, I think, especially important um, that Christine mentioned, um, just because uh, I think these, these vendors, we're seeing that they, they might not be used to the idea of, of the ADA and re- reasonable mm-hmm. accommodations and all those kinds of things. And in addition, on the employer's side, they might think, uh, oh, it's, it's something that the tester is doing, so I don't have to bother with it. I don't have to do anything about it. Um, but the employer is still going to have the legal obligation to provide reasonable mm-hmm. accommodations, even if the person um, asks the, the vendor, right? And so you, you have to ha- come up with a system where the vendor and the or test administrator and the employer are talking to each other to make sure that a request for reasonable accommodation doesn't fall through the, the cracks. Otherwise, the employer can, can be on the hook. So Aaron, let's talk a little bit more about third-party vendors, uh, because this is something that's come up in the context of 
ACB's broader advocacy work around digital inclusion and accessible technology. It was certainly related to websites, applications, and online services. So are the are the obligations on the employers themselves, or do the third-party software and testing providers have their own obligations to provide reasonable accommodations and make accessible uh, software and technology? Right. So, so for sure, the employer uh, it has that responsibility. Um, and you know, one of the things we stress is that this is true even if the employer contracts out some of the decision-making process or some of the hiring process, whatever it happens to be, um, you know, we like to say that you, you can't circumvent your non-discrimination obligations by offloading some of your uh, hiring procedure onto someone else and have them discriminate for you, right? You, you've got, if you're going to use a third party to do part of your hiring, um, then you're responsible for, for what they do and for discrimination if they do it, including failure to provide reasonable accommodation. And so the, um, the liability will, will go back to the employer, um, which is something they might not necessarily understand. Uh, and I think that employers and vendors are going to have to become smarter about talking to each other and making sure that they have an agreement between each themselves as to you know, how that happens and how that works. Because not only do you have to provide reasonable accommodations, but you have to do it in an expeditious manner in a timely way. Um, and so that people have a chance to compete on equal footing. Um, so you don't want it to take forever and, and you want it to be fair um, for that reason. So uh, whether or not the third party vendors uh, themselves has, have reasonable accommodation obligations that we don't discuss that in the, in the document that's uh, kind of a developing area of the law. So um, uh, some, some people have argued that they, uh, some of these vendors anyways, uh, act as employment agencies, but um, certainly we haven't taken any position on that. Uh, and almost always when the EEOC is dealing with a charge or a complaint of discrimination, it's the employer. Um, so at least the employer is gonna be on the hook. Yeah, and I just wanna, this is, I think, because I, I love the ADA. I think, you know, it was passed, you know, years ago, but it, it had a lot of foresight um, when it was written. So just as a, as a general provision, the ADA prohibits a covered entity, so like an employer, employment agency, labor organization, joint labor management committees, it's the, a long list, but the ADA prohibits these covered entities from participating in a contractual or other arrangement or relationship that subjects a qualified applicant or employee with a disability to discrimination. And so there is this provision in the ADA that speaks to this issue of, you know, when an employer or employment agency uses a vendor um, like this third party software or these AI technologies. So, um, you know, both of our documents uh, reiterate that the obligation to avoid disability discrimination still applies to all employers, public and private, um, even those who use the software vendors or third parties to implement the AI tools. And thank you for that. Christine, I guess one follow-up question uh, regarding to the ADA. The ADA also has language on um, entities that interfere 
with the the rights of employees and applicants. Um, could these third party vendors, uh, if their tools are inaccessible or are discriminating against uh, disabled employees or applicants, could that be considered interfering with them? Interesting. So you mean, so yeah, so we, we've generally been talking through the lens of Title I of the ADA, which are the employment um, provisions mm-hmm. of the ADA, and you're referencing Title V of the ADA, right? Um, I'm sorry, <laughs> and I apologize for getting too legal wonky, um, especially as someone who is very hard about plain language and, and not getting too <laughs> um, into the legal world. Um, but I think that's an interesting point. We have not taken any kind of positions um, on that, but I think you raise an interesting um, claim as well. Um, I, I, I do also want to raise that there's, you know, while we're talking within the employment space, there's also Title III of the ADA's provision that applies to exams, courses for licensing, credentialing, you know, the professional world as well. We often think about, you know, it maybe from the context of the LSAT or the GED, but there's also these entities that are involved in, um, you know, credentialing and licensing and things like that that are employment related. And that provision says any person, it doesn't say any employer, it doesn't say it's not specific to any kind of, um, you know, specific subset of uh, entities, it just says a person. So that could potentially, um, you know, we have not taken a position on it, but that is a broad provision that applies to a range of entities um, as well that could also um, be related to the employment space uh, too. Great. So um, I want to go back to the discussion we had on um, types of technologies that are being used in employment. Um, and like there are several or quite a few software companies or, or AI tools that are marketed as so-called as like so-called, you know, bias-free. Like they don't right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. does that like ha- can that um, affect discrimination or can that like, um, what kind of effect, effect can, that, can that have here? Yeah, those are very misleading. And, you know, it's a marketing term. And so you always have to read the fine print. It doesn't have a, a legal meaning, a particular legal meaning to, to find out what they're talking about. Um, but, uh, you know, just informally, uh, what we've seen is that almost never does that have anything to do with disability. Usually what they're talking about is that the um, tool has undergone a a sort of a a procedure where in step one, they they perform a a kind of an experiment and they give the test to some test subjects. And then they see whether or not uh, different groups um, perform equally well on average. And so, you know, different racial groups and different um, sex uh, categories is, are the two that they usually take a look at. And if it's if they say it's bias-free, that that just means that you know there aren't differences on average between the performance of each of each of those groups. But like I said, it it really almost always is just sex and and race uh, number one and number two. Um, 
they're talking about average group performance there, which is a little bit different from uh, disability discrimination, the kind we've been talking about. Um, so, f- you know, somebody who doesn't get a job because they they couldn't see the screen and, and play the video games for that reason, it's not going to matter much to them that other people in their group, you know, people with disabilities, tend to do well on average. Uh, the, I mean, the problem is with their particular disability and how it's affecting them um, in this case. And so uh, it's, it's, it's sort of the wrong subject and also the kind of wrong kind of bias that they're testing for. Um, so that's, that, that can be very misleading. I feel like we see that a lot. It's like the, especially in DEI in general, like the inclusion disability, just like this, there's always a focus on race and ethnicity and gender and not disability. So that's not surprising that's here as well. Yeah. Something to add is, oh, no, no, go ahead. I just think one thing to keep in mind too is that when they talk about bias free, um, you know, employers have to keep in mind that there are many different types of disabilities and hiring technologies may impact each in a different way. And so employers really should scrutinize, carefully scrutinize any hiring technology, including those that claim to be quote unquote bias free, because what does that mean um, in terms of disability as well? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's doubtful that there even could be a totally bias free uh, test because w- would that mean that it's accessible to everybody and is that even e- even possible? Um, I mean, historically, I think it's because there there's a, a well-known set of regulations that talks about um, bias in the in the race and sex context, and they the vendors seem to assume that that's it. That's that if you comply with those regulations, then you're all, you're all set. There isn't any other kind of bias that you have to worry about, but um, you know, as, as you're pointing out, uh, and as the, the two documents emphasize, there's there's a whole other kind of discrimination that isn't even accounted for under those regulations, which is disability and also um, age. Age discrimination could also be uh, a problem. Yeah, that makes sense. And I just um, go ahead. Kind of flag that for all of these kind of claims that people are making about whether or not they're bias free and they're advertising it. You know, the Federal Trade Commission, one of our other sister agencies, investigates um, unfair and deceptive practices as well under the FTC Act, the Federal Trade Commission Act. And so, or yeah, the FTC Act, I always get some of the acronyms wrong. And I know that they have, the FTC has also issued some um, statements, blog posts, things like that, discussing truth, fairness and equity um, when a company is using AI as well. So um, this implicates, those kind of claims obviously implicate civil rights and other discrimination, um, but it also could, you know, the FTC is, is discusses this also from the perspective of an unfair and deceptive advertising or unfa- unfair deceptive practice in general too. That's interesting. I did not realize that could be considered as false or yeah, as like deceptive. Um, so, what must like what should employers consider like aside, like along, along with like those so, like, testing make sure that um like bias software is actually effective. Like um, 
what else should employers consider or um, when they or think about when they, when they develop um, AI or algorithm, algorithm software or purchase, purchase, purchase them from other parties? Right. So, so I mean, I, I actually think that uh, this issue has been so under the radar for so long that um, the, the thinking about it at all is, is a pretty good sign. Uh, and so that's one thing that if the employer is shopping, for example, um, to ask the, the vendor, you know, what about disability and see whether the vendor says anything that's helpful because um, that's going to be a, a good sign. But, you know, more specifically, um, you could ask about reasonable accommodation procedures, uh, whether they have alternative formats, um, you know, whether they tell people what the test is like so that they know whether to request a reasonable accommodation, um, you know, make sure that no medical information is, is elicited during the, during the test, uh, things like that. And um, depending on what the vendor says, you know, the questioning could go down different paths. But um, I think also another one is whether the, the vendor uh, used uh, disability sort of experts or, or groups during the development of the product to, um, to make sure that it wasn't disadvantaging some particular group. Uh, so just thinking carefully about it, and finding out whether the vendor has taken steps and what they are uh, is going to be important. And Agustine? I, I would just, yeah, I think that, you know, often employers purchase the software from a vendor, or retain another company um, to provide and use the hiring technologies on the employer's behalf. So employers have to be diligent when they're vetting selecting and retaining these companies. They should confirm that these companies are taking steps to analyze and address potential disability discrimination issues before they're used and also regularly when they are in use to make sure that the hiring technologies are not um, unfairly screening out qualified individuals with a disability. Um, employers should make sure that their hiring technologies are using criteria that are job related and consistent with business necessity, which are terms that are, um, you know, in the ADA. And, you know, employers should also provide the reasonable accommodations and plan out and make known to individuals how reasonable accommodation requests will be reviewed by them or their vendor. Um, I think that, you know, when you are, you know, questions to ask uh, that employers could ask are, you know, when you're designing or even choosing your hiring technologies, you know, the tools should really consider how they impact different disabilities. Um, you know, for mm -hmm. example, if, it, if the DMV designs a hiring technology to avoid discriminating against persons who are deaf, um, it still may violate the ADA if, it, if the technology discriminates against people who are blind or have autism or have epilepsy. And so it's really asking those questions that are important. Um, they should also really um, evaluate the information and data being used that built that are you know built into the technology. So when we talked about like using the current successful applicants, you know, really investigating like what does that what does that data set look like? What does that information look like? Um, how did you build it around that um, data set? Um, and then 
you know, it should go through regular, regularly when in use assessing whether or not people with disabilities are being screened out um, when those people are able to, you know, perform the essential functions of the job with or without reasonable accommodations. Um, and I think we talked earlier about like, you know, the test kind of model of these tools and, you know, some technologies require that people take a test that has an algorithm like the, you know, interactive games or personality assessments. And so the employers really need to make sure that they're using, um, that any of their tests and games are measuring only the relevant skills and abilities of the applicant, not their, you know, sensory manual speaking skills that are impaired and that the tests do not seek to measure. And I think we, we mentioned this earlier, or Aaron, you know, smartly raised this earlier as one of the core parts of the EOC documents. And I just want to reiterate it again, but employers should make sure that their technologies are not unlawfully seeking medical or disability related information or conducting medical exams. Um, that is something that is very clear in the ADA as being prohibited. You know, there are certain disability related information or inquiries or medical exams that are prohibited at different stages of the process and under the ADA to outlines what those requirements are and, and employers should be careful in asking um, and retaining these vendors, you know, what they are doing to avoid and to follow those provisions of the ADA. Um, yeah, there's a there's lot of things to consider. <laughs> there's one famous case, Carriker versus Rena Center, where the employee Rena Center was using the MMPI as as the employment test, and the MMPI is is a diagnostic tool um, that can be used to diagnose uh, mental health conditions. Um, and so, you know, that was found to be a medical exam, and and that they were not supposed to be using it to um, to make employment decisions. So, so definitely anything like that is going to be a problem. And, and when it comes to taking a look at the technology, I, I would, uh, you know, there's the whole reasonable accommodation thing, but in terms of the technology itself, um, to take a look, not only at the uh, uh, format of the test, we've been kind of concentrating on, on the, the interface kind of aspects, but also the content of the test, uh, because the, the qual qualities or traits that the thing is measuring might themselves be correlated with a, with a, with a kind of disability. Um, one of the examples in the document is uh, if, if it's a personality test and they're measuring something like extroversion, someone with social anxiety disorder might score low because of that um, and still be able to do the job. Uh, so that's another aspect of it. So, so not, not just the, um, the interface, but also the content to make sure that um, those traits or qualities aren't correlated with any particular disability. And Swatha, before your last question, I just want to sneak one more in here. Um, this has been a, a really busy start to the year for 2022, especially for the, the Department of Justice related to technology discrimination. Uh, Christine, in addition to this guidance on artificial intelligence and algorithms, there was also the guidance from the, the DOJ in March of 2022 uh, related to website accessibility. And in, in my mind, these two items would seem to be very related and intertwined. Uh, does the department view that similarly? Yeah, I think that in our AI um, algorithm document, we, we do talk about, um, you know, 
inaccessibility or, you know, in the same way that like a website may be inaccessible because a lot of these tools are obviously computer based or digitally based on an iPad, on an iPhone, on a, or a smartphone. Um, and so there is this aspect of the, um, uh, that it definitely relates the, the, the necessity for folks who have disabilities that make it difficult to, you know, to use an online or a computer-based uh, system, it's, it's certainly relevant. And I think that you make a great um, point and thank you for giving the plug about our guidance um, that we issued in March, just more generally on web accessibility and the ADA. All right, great. Um, so this question for both of you, um, what can a person do if they feel they've been coming against in employment or hiring? Right, so it depends on the employer. Um, so I, I'll talk about federal employees and then also private employers and then um, hand it over to Christine. But if, if you work for a business um, that has 15 or more employees, then what you would do is you would come to EEOC and file a charge of discrimination. And you don't have to come with evidence. It's not like you have to do your own detective work or anything. Um, we start up an investigation, uh, gather evidence, interview people, uh, subpoena things if necessary. And we try to find out whether there was discrimination. Um, and then if, if, there, if it seems like there was, then uh, you know, we go on to a settlement phase and, and so on after that. Um, it's sort of a similar process if you're a federal employee, but it's it, not the same place. What you do is you would file a complaint in your uh, local agency's EEO office, and then that office would do the investigation and try to figure out um, whether there was discrimination. And then you might have the, the chance to appeal to the EEOC. So we, we could get involved eventually. Um, but uh, it, it all has to do with the, uh, the office, whatever it is, whether it's in your agency or at the EEOC, starting off the process with an investigation to just so that we, we can know the facts because we know that people don't always know all the facts. It's not like the employer lays them out for everybody to see usually. And so, uh, uh, I would say don't be afraid to come to the EEOC and ask about filing a charge. Um, don't think that you have to be able to put a case on right away. And so for, um, for public employers, so state and local governments that are employers, you would actually file the, the person should file a charge of discrimination first with the EEOC, same as if you were um, a, a, worked for an employer uh, that's a private employer. Um, and so we encourage folks to do that. And also just to make a note that there are time limits for when you should file your charge. And so, um, you know, it's, it's good to, to kind of move quickly if you can. Um, once the, you know, it, once the EOC has investigated um, a charge that involves a public employer and found reasonable cause to find that there was discrimination and then, um, you know, was not able to obtain some kind of voluntary resolution through the conciliation process or like a settlement of sorts, uh, the charge then gets referred over to us if it's a public employer for us to enforce either through a litigation, um, uh, et cetera. 
in addition, though, um, if you believe that you or someone else has been discriminated against based on disability because of, you know, a state or local government's use of a hiring technology, you can also file a complaint directly with the Department of Justice, our office. Um, information about our DOJ complaint process is available at our website, civilrights.justice.gov. Again, that's civilrights.justice.gov. But if you are, um, if you encountered discrimination, I would, in this context, with a public or private employer, I encourage you to file your charge of discrimination um, within the appropriate time limits with the EEOC. And the appropriate time limits are, are either 180 days or 300 days, depending on the state that you're in. Um, and it's a little different for federal employees, but generally it's, it's one of those two. Uh, so it's not as long as you might think. Well, Christine Kim and Aaron Konopaxi um, from the Department of Justice and Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, respectively. Thank you so much for your time and joining us for this conversation here today to talk about the work of your uh, respective agencies slash departments regarding the use of artificial intelligence and the implications of algorithmic discrimination for people with disabilities as it relates to hiring, the workplace, uh, and other aspects of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, we know this is a really important topic for many of our members, uh, especially those at ACV students and next generation members out there, but it as Christine rightfully mentioned as well, there could be age-related discrimination and that could potentially impact uh, our affiliate members in the Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss. Um, so I realize this issue is, is very new. We're talking about emerging technologies that will continue to become more prevalent in our everyday lives. And we thank you for your partnership and collaboration to ensure that these technologies are accessible and to share with our members and let them know uh, what they should do if they have encountered or believe that they have encountered uh, some discriminatory practices in this regard. So again, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. We look thank, forward to thank staying you in touch. Yes. And, and same to you, Christine. Thank you so much for your time here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And whether it relates to website accessibility, algorithmic uh, bias and discrimination, Swatha at ACB and our members, we will do what we always do. Keep advocating. This episode of the ACB Advocacy Update has been made possible in part through the support of ACB of Minnesota. ACBM wants to send along heartfelt greetings to all of its family throughout the ACB community. Having hosted two outstanding and invigorating ACB national conventions, they are committed to expanding opportunity for Americans who are blind and visually impaired. 
ACBM supports the James R. Olson Memorial Scholarship honoring one of its past members, and they continue to not let life during these challenging times slow down. ACBM invites all to their informative bi-monthly community conference calls, ranging on everything from sports and technology to gardening and loving life in the land of 10,000 lakes. They hold quarterly monthly membership meetings, monthly coffee gatherings, and monthly board meetings. To learn more about ACBM, visit their website at www acbminnesota.org or call 612-223-5543. ACBM, a supporter of the ACB Media Network.